Hidden Gems, Episode 20, The Rise and Fall of Tasty Minstrel Games. Welcome to Hidden Gems, a board game podcast where we review unusual, forgotten, and underappreciated board games. We're your hosts. My name is Chris. I'm Jason. And I'm Cameron. Thanks for listening to our show. Welcome back, everybody. Oh, yeah. All right, guys, I've got to talk to you about something that my wife and I have been doing ever since our son was born, all right? All right. So (laughs) for my birthday, I think last year, she got me this book of pie recipes, okay? And the the sub story is my birthday's in June. I got this book in April because I had this terrible habit of a package would show up on the porch and I would just open it and be like, where did we get this pie book from? (laughs) It's just like... Well, it was a surprise for you. <laughs> it's going to be your birthday present. Because I do bake. We're big fans of the Great British Baking Show yes, in our are. house. And I'm the pie guy. When we go to like family gatherings, I make pies. So she brought this huge book. It's almost like a textbook size hardcover pie recipe book. And this book sat around between all the rest of last year and most of this year. Anticipating the birth of my son, I was like, you know what would be really fun is we put that pie book to use Mm -hmm. the whole time that you're on maternity leave. So Fridays are going to be Friday Pie Day. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. You know, in my first year of marriage, I gained like 15 pounds. (laughs) (laughs) You're well on your way, man. Oh, yeah. Actually, my first year of marriage, I think I gained like 20 pounds, but I was also going to CrossFit three times a week. (laughs) That's true. It's a different kind of weight gain. It's a different kind of weight gain. Now I'm putting on the other kind of weight. But I thought it would be fun to share some of the different pies that we've had that we've made out of the book. So far, we have made a chocolate peanut butter cream pie. Mm-hmm. Heavenly. A lemon blueberry pie. Very refreshing. <laughs> that sounds good. The classic chess pie. Oh, dude. Yeah. Fudgy and delicious. A standard apple pie. Five spiced pear pie. Okay. We were like, oh, you know, we've done apples. I don't want to keep just doing the same thing over and over again. We grabbed pears and we found this one. It's Chinese five spice. I had mm-hmm. never had it before. Yeah. It goes really, really well with pears. Mocha mousse pie. And that one is coffee mocha. Which I get, no, that's right. Mocha is co- coffee. Mocha is yes, it is. That's right. Yeah, so it was <laughs> I was a, trying to figure out, I was like, there's another mocha? No, no, I, yeah. <laughs> I had never made a mocha anything, but it was delicious. It tastes like coffee. And this is why I wanted to share this, because my sister-in-law and I were just goofing around and, and chatting about this idea that suddenly came into our minds of what if you could make a cereal-based pie? Like flavored cereal pie. milk. The cereal milk. Yes. Ice cream they make. And that was my sister-in-law Tori's idea. She was like, you could put the cereal in milk. I was like, and you could crush it up and make it like a graham cracker type crust. Huh. So I made a cinnamon toast crunch pie. Okay. It was not that good. (laughs) (laughs) However, mine was edible. Tori's was not. (laughs) I saw the pictures of it and she said that her kids wouldn't even eat it. (laughs) You should have used Lucky Charms. It was a missed opportunity. Well, it could be a series of pies, potentially. (laughs) We are going to return back to the book because, if I'm honest, even though my Cinnamon Toast Crunch Pie was edible... The custard was a little bit more like scrambled eggs than like a nice custard. So I feel like I'm doing better when I stick to the recipe book. I took a home economics class in (laughs) high school. Yeah. Because I wanted to eat twice during the day. That's Uh, the only reason I took the class. It was my friend Jeremy and then the rest of the class was our female classmates. And we made eclairs one time and it literally... With scrambled eggs. <laughs> so bad. Oh, Making gross. pastries is hard, man. Yeah. It, it was like scrambled eggs with chocolate on it. Yeah. I couldn't figure it out. Man, I'm impressed that you take on baking. I love to cook. <laughs> I do a lot of cooking, but baking, <clears throat> for as precise as the work that I, the work that we both do <laughs> yeah. is, right? Programming all day. I cannot do baking. I'm just like, I don't want to have to think about precision. I want to be able to just throw a little bit of this in there, throw a little bit, a little bit of that in there. 
get something yeah. good. Yeah, well, doctor even... doctor work isn't very precise. <laughs> Is I, don't, it? I don't know <laughs> what y'all are talking about. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, this might be cancer. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Just spitballing it, you know. <laughs> I expect some pie for the next episode. Like cocktail can, of the episode. Bring, we need a pie, pie of the episode. Dude, I would love that. Pie, for sure. All right, Jason. I know you've been waiting to talk about this one for a while. Yeah. What have you been up to? Because you're going so slow with it. I am. <laughs> so you brought up Mike Selinker's list. What is it? Top 100 games that everyone you needs to play? absolutely positively must play, according yeah. to him. Yeah, so you inspired me. There was a game on there that neither of us had heard of. Nope. Fool's Errand. Uh, yep. Which is an old... It's not text-based, but it's it's old. It is. 1987. Yeah. 1987 puzzle game. That only runs on a Macintosh emulator. Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's a Windows version of it, but I ran it on a Macintosh emulator and just finished it the other night. I have to say, it was quite good mm-hmm. for 1987. So this is a puzzle game. Yep. So there's some mazes. There's some actual puzzles, like rearrange the pictures to yep. make the bigger picture. And there are a lot of word-based descramble these letters, decode these letters. Yep. Word finds. Word finds. Type puzzles. But what I find to be most clever about this is that it's all put together in this really unique fairy tale-ish mm-hmm. type story. About the fool. Right. The puzzle or the game is basically you're scrolling through this very long scroll that goes in pages and each page has a puzzle on it. And once you've collected all the pages, then each of those pages turns into a piece of a map. I don't think this is giving away too much. And then at some point you have to do something with this map to figure out, you <laughs> yeah. know, what happens after that and i don't know i I really enjoyed it it was quite challenging in certain Mm -hmm. spots but just finally made it through it i'm curious to hear what you think so far chris i I know you're only like a a little ways through it i am so before i talk about it how many times did you cheat (laughs) okay so i told you about one (laughs) once you did i'm gonna make you fess up in public on air (laughs) i'll fess up to it so there is one type of puzzle have you solved any of these yeah, we talked about it. I did one legit. Yeah, you did the easiest one, I think. Well, apparently you didn't do any of them. <laughs> no, I did the easiest one. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. So there are a couple of puzzles where it's basically just a line of buttons. So the first one is like five buttons, and they're numbered one through five. And then there's one with six buttons, and there's one with seven buttons. And essentially the puzzle is you have to click these buttons in the right order right. to reveal a message yeah and each time you click a button it transforms a block of text in a certain way it adds a letter to the beginning or it reverses the letters or it adds a letter to the beginning and a letter to the end and there's some combination of clicking those buttons that results in a phrase of some sort yep and the easiest one is not that bad because as you're clicking through you can start to see which ones look like they're going in a direction that is leading to something logical and which ones are not the ones that took eight or nine buttons I don't know how anybody solves this. Challenge accepted. So, good luck with that. (laughs) I wrote a computer program that solved it for me. (laughs) Which I consider to be only half cheating because I did a lot of work to make it it work. Basically, I wrote a little computer program that spit out every single possibility of what would happen if you clicked the buttons in a different order. And then I scrolled through it and I found one that made sense. But, (laughs) like I said, I only consider that half cheating. And that's only one puzzle out of like 100. (laughs) It's a lot. You but, cheated but on I'll a couple others. I don't think so. You did. I don't the want to spoil one. it, but there's a clicky one where you click on something. <laughs> you told us about that one. And you clicked off the screen or something to. Oh, that's not cheating. That's, yeah, cre- cheating. that's creativity. You weren't doing it in the spirit of the puzzle. You cheated. <laughs> that's creativity. Cheated. 
It's not. It's not pure. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> two years from now, when you finally finish all the puzzles, <laughs> we'll talk about it. It won't be that long, hopefully. So I agree with everything you said. This game is surprisingly good for as old as it is. Something that you hinted at just now in talking about the puzzles that I think is interesting is this game reminded me a lot of a game Jason and I really enjoy called The Witness. Oh, yeah. Which we'll talk about in more detail on another time. Because we could talk about that. But in The Witness, puzzles build off of prior puzzles and you learn things. And I feel like there was a theme of that in this Mm. game as well. They'll present you with an easy puzzle and then they'll give you another variation of it slightly harder and then it gets slightly harder. Mm-hmm. So in that way, some of it felt familiar. But I will say there's a quote by Stephen King that I like. It says, sooner or later, everything old is new again. And it presented a lot of puzzles that I had just never seen before. Mm. Yeah. Like the mazes and the point and clicky things was just very unique, I thought. Yeah, agreed. So I enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to finishing it. And unfortunately, my free trial of WinZip software ran out. <laughs> <laughs> this is hilarious to me that you feel like you need WinZip in order to play so this. Explain this to me. So I don't have to have this to run the game? <laughs> I'm telling you. No. Seriously. Figuring out how to play the game was harder for me than actually playing the game. It yeah, took to be me fair, about 45 in... minutes to figure out how to get this, this game to yeah, run. Yeah, I am impressed that you actually got it to run without my help in the I first did. place. I did. It was hard. Right. <laughs> But yeah, so you must be opening the zip file and running it directly from within the zip file. I guess I don't. All yeah. I know is I need WinZip to so run. So you can the open game. the zip like, file. Subscribe for nineteen ninety nine. Forty nine ninety five. Forty nine ninety five. That's why I have to understand that this Mac that you hate so much in front of you can unarchive. Well, show zip me how to do it so I can play free? the game. I don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, most computers can unzip things without WinZip. I don't even these know days. what unzipping means, guys. <laughs> And you just extract it one time and you're done. You don't have to. <laughs> okay, well, show me how to Are do it after. Quit publicly shaming me. Uh, anyways, it's a struggle, but I'm going to get there. <laughs> I look forward to it. We'll yeah, talk man. about it again two years from now. We'll talk show. about it again. It won't be that long. All right, well, what do you got, Chris? Yeah, so Bryce and I, my oldest son, we watched The Eternals last night, which is the latest offering in the Marvel series of movies. As you all know, if you've been listening to the show for a while, I love comic books, and I really love the MCU, what Marvel is doing in their movie line. And I thought I would just take a couple minutes. I'm going to be really quick. I'm not going to be <laughs> long-winded here. And I just want to briefly, because you know I love lists. This is fun. To go through all the offerings of Marvel during Phase 4. So if you've been keeping up, I know these two guys, these two shots. I thought it was done. I thought they finished it with the it's last not, movie. Ugh, it's not done. Phase 3 is done with the Infinity Saga with Thanos and all that. But now they're springboarding into the next phase. Which is most likely going to be Galactus. It's a whole other series of movies. It'll be Phase 4, 5, and 6. Okay. So there's seven took movies. Twenty five le- years for Star Wars to make all nine movies. <laughs> I know. And they're right? already in phases four, five, and six. Yep. Marvel man, they're on a roll right now. They're killing it. I'm gonna just go through them quickly, least favorite to most favorite, and just briefly why. There will be minor spoilers here. All right. Number seven, Black Widow. I like Black Widow as a character. I think Scarlett Johansson is awesome as Black Widow. The thing that killed Black Widow for me was Taskmaster. He's an awesome Marvel Comics villain. One of my favorites. And the MCU is pretty good about staying pure to the comics. And they did not with Taskmaster. And it really upset me. Another thing about Taskmaster is he was only in the movie for like eight minutes. It was kind of like Phantom Menace Star Wars. You know how they teased Darth Maul like, oh, there's this really awesome villain. Oh, yeah. 
Then he has a four minute lightsaber fight and he gets cut in half. The same exact thing. Spoiler alert, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Old spoilers. Yeah. Yeah. It was so disappointing. I felt very similar with Taskmaster. Disappointing. But still, the movie was good. That just disappointed me. Number six. WandaVision. This one is weird. Every episode represents a decade of TV television, all the way back from like the 50s or whatever. Very experimental in nature. I enjoyed the show. I don't like how they did the main villain in the show, Agatha Harkness, who's a very obscure Marvel villain, but she was just very overacted, Mm. I felt like. Like, way overacted. In my opinion. And not like a way where they were trying to be like that. Like, you know, sometimes they go over the top. Yeah, because Marvel usually doesn't do that. I just think the actress they got to portray her just overdid it. So it took a little bit away from the experience, but I still enjoyed it. Number five, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. A decent origin story. Characters very likable. Good action and fight sequences. I just hated the end fight. It was this big, generic, big, bad monster beast thing with no personality. It's kind of lame. And then the Power Rangers transformed and it, it, formed the Megazord and they exactly. through the city. It, it, it <laughs> felt very much breaking. that way. Number four, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Now we're starting to get into the better ones. Basically, the whole premise of this show is to show how taking up the mantle of Captain America just can't easily be done. They try it with John Walker, and he cannot do it. He becomes the U.S. agent, who I'm really excited to see what they do with him in future movies. And then ultimately, Sam, who is the Falcon, becomes Captain America. And his whole character progression to the show is great. Really enjoyed that one. Number three, Loki. I love the multiverse. I'm a huge DC Comics fan. And the multiverse is a huge trend in DC Comics, which is why I prefer DC as a comic book reader. But this is explain what this means. What is a multiverse? Okay, so very briefly, the multiverse is every decision in our life Let's say I decide to get a Twix bar for candy instead of a Reese cup. Well, in some other dimension, there's a version of me that actually grabbed the Twix bar instead of the Reese's cup or whatever. (laughs) And there are infinite points of difference. So there are like infinite versions of yourself. For example, you get the Twix, you are an unhappy person. (laughs) Right. If you have the Reese's cup, you are a happy person. Right. No way, man. Twix is better. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the idea behind the multiverse is there's basically infinite versions of yourself. And so you could end up being very different in another timeline. You might be evil in one timeline based on a series of choices that you make. Whereas in another timeline, you might be good. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's so what that's... happens when you choose Twix. <laughs> right. Eventually. Right. Makes you good. You said. No. Eventually you become an evil person. Oh, man. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Twix For, is great. Versus Twix or versus Reese's. Oh, okay. No, you're right. I'm sorry. I take it back. So yeah, that's Loki. It's great. Really enjoyed it. Number two, What If. This is an animated series on Disney Plus that has to do with the multiverse. Mm -hmm. Basically, What If is the consequence of all of these timelines emerging when the timeline gets disrupted in Loki. Really great. I will say also, the last two episodes of What If, specifically the penultimate episode, is some of the best stuff that Marvel has ever done. So good. I remember watching the second to last episode and just being in awe of it, to be Should quite honest. Should I just honest. jump in and watch the last couple episodes? It, it, you could, because they're kind of, they're connected, but also separate stories. Basically tells you what it would have been like had Ultron been successful in Age of Ultron, and it's pretty terrifying. Oh man, I, st- I still don't know what's going on. It's good, it's good. <laughs> yeah, I'm lost. All right, and then number one is The Eternals. This movie was amazing. And the main reason I wanted to do this is to try to get people to go watch it because it's getting really bad reviews. And I cannot figure out why. 
This movie is great. So one of the biggest complaints people have about the Eternals is they don't understand why they didn't interfere with Thanos during the snap stuff that happened in the first three phases. Let me just say that this movie answers those questions perfectly and it makes total sense. If you understand who the Eternals are and what their real purpose is, you will understand why they don't do it. And it's very satisfactory. I think people don't like it because this movie introduces a lot of stuff really quickly. There's a lot of exploration into all the cosmic stuff, which is the next progression for the movies, which I think for the average watcher is probably a step too far. They're just introducing a lot of spacey stuff. What you took like several years of your life to develop and you're thinking through reading the comics they're trying to give you in like 25 minutes. Exactly. Exactly. Iron Man, Captain America, people can handle that. Mm. Huge cosmic gigantic beings from another dimension who are doing these different things on a cosmic scale. Mm. Probably too much for a lot of people. But if you're a comics fan, I think you'll enjoy it. Is that like this moon guy on your uh, poster here? It is exactly. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's Ego. I thought I was making a joke. That No, you're not. <laughs> so that's Ego, the living planet, who's a celestial, and the Eternals is all about the celestials. Whoa. So it's that kind of stuff. Crazy. The man in the moon. The man in the moon. That's right. <laughs> it has Jon Snow and Rob Stark in it. It does. So Jon Snow is going to be the Black Knight, who's going to be awesome character. And then Rob Stark plays Icarus, who is one of the uh, Eternals. Well, maybe they won't screw up the Black Knight story. <laughs> I hope not. I hope so over here. So there you go. How long did that take? From when you started talking? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I lost track somewhere halfway through. I know you're bored. That's all right. <laughs> well, oh. you want to talk about, Chris? This is your hey, show, too. You know, you know so, some people out there, I'm like, <laughs> y'all would be interested in hearing that. Yeah. All right, well, this is the part of the show where normally we would introduce the cocktail that we're enjoying, and tonight we are actually just going to have to pour out a little bit, (laughs) and in fact, we're going to have to each pour out all of our cocktails for TMG. Yeah. No cocktail. No cocktail tonight. tonight. I'm failing you guys. Dribble a little. No dry ice last time. (laughs) No cocktail at all this time. Come on. I can't ever make you happy. (laughs) However, that sad little fact is going to lead us to a discussion of TMG games. We have an interesting title for this episode. The yeah. Fall of TMG games, Tasty yes. Minstrel games. Tell us about that, Chris. Yeah. And I, as I'm talking through this, I would welcome you guys to chime in and ask questions or comment because I yeah, think yeah. some of this stuff that I'm going to be talking about with TMG is very pertinent to the board game hobby. We've talked about this stuff before, actually. Right. So feel free to chime in. Tasty Minstrel Games has been around for a while. They were started in 2009. Before I get into their history, I just want to read off some of these games. Mm -hmm. Just to show how influential this company is. Okay, got a lot. Yeah. Amon Ray, At the Gates of Loyang, Belfort, which is a great game that doesn't get talked about enough. Colosseum, Eminent Domain, Gentis, Luna, Orleans, Mm. Village, Yokohama, which I know Jason loves. It's a great game. Yeah, it's one of your faves. They have an impressive catalog. So to hear that they're struggling now is sad because they are a really great company. So as I mentioned, they were started in 2009 by Michael Mendes with the help of his friend and designer Seth Jaffe. Michael says he always knew he wanted to be a board game designer and publisher, although he had to put those plans on hold for a while. He went to college and became a financial advisor, actually. And then a few years later, when he's a little bit more financially secure, he started Tasty Mitchell Games. I would say that TMG, other than their excellent catalog, is known for one thing. 
And that is their deluxifying of games on Kickstarter. Well, actually, let me back up. So they were one of the first companies to use crowdfunding as a way to successfully publish their releases. <laughs> so if you're newer to the hobby, you may not know this, but Kickstarter originally was for unknown indie publishers to get their games out to the masses. Kickstarter was originally specifically for board games? Well, no, 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 for all different kinds of things, but it was mostly in the board game circles. Mm. It was just publishers and games you had never heard of. Oh, okay. The first Kickstarter success, I believe, is probably Alien Frontiers, which was by Clever Mojo Games, and they were unknown at the time. But for better or for worse, more established companies jumped onto that. And this was actually somewhat controversial at the time. Mm. I remember a lot of people were upset about that. When Queen Games and TMG got in Kickstarter because they were like, you don't belong here. This mm. is for people who are trying to kickstart their no reputation. Right. Yeah. Hmm. And they so, were like, oh, great opportunities for pre-sales, I guess. Exactly. They were using it as a pre-order service yeah. and not a way to get their idea out to the public, okay. which I remember really upset people mm. when they first started doing it. Do you remember that? I think I started paying attention to Kickstarter a little bit after that. <laughs> Probably once Stonemeyer started getting involved right. and Scythe and all that was really when I started taking notice of Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, he was actually one of those unknowns that got his reputation through Kickstarter, and now he's since left it. Interesting. And he, he's kind of doing it the way I think at that time people expect you to, to do it use it to get noticed and then start your company mm -hmm. instead of using it as a pre-order service for your well-established game company yeah. right i mean it makes sense because the industry is like oh there's all these eyeballs on what's coming out and what's new at kickstarter people are browsing the board game space on kickstarter and so it becomes this place of like okay well there's already a bunch of eyeballs there right let's get in front of these people even though they know that we're an existing publisher Yep, hmm. exactly. Why not, right? But right. now I think the consequence is that it's just very hard to get noticed on Kickstarter now if you're a budding publisher or designer yeah. because yeah. you get drowned in all the mythic games and Awakened Realms and the Queen mm. stuff. You get drowned out in the noise, I think. The 20,000 backer behemoths that are on there. Yep, exactly. So they did start doing the crowdfunding and they became quickly known as the Deluxifying Company. So they were one of the first companies that really started to usher in this push of not just releasing a game, but releasing it with really extraordinary bits, hmm. okay? Which is, again, commonplace now. <laughs> but for all of our listeners, I know a lot of our people are the OG gamers. They've been around a while. They know that games, not all games look great, right? They were playable. Cardboard chits and beige. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, if I understand it correctly, that was kind of part of their reasoning behind using something like Kickstarter, right? was like, well, we normally would not necessarily be able to publish a game like this with this level of componentry yep. without something like this. I don't know how much that holds true ultimately I, from a financial perspective, but it, it seemed like that was kind of their justification. I think you're right. You know, that, that, is, that is true. So interestingly, this is where things start to go south for TMG. So in 2017, they launched a crowdfunded public ownership shares to raise funds. So the technical name for this is a private equity funded operation. I'm not an economist. I'm not exactly sure what that is. But basically what happened is there were some questionable ethics regarding their shareholders because apparently you didn't have to pay your shareholders dividends when they were profitable. And so it was seen as somewhat of a scheme to make money with no intention of ever paying these shareholders back. 
So basically, they continued to downward spiral, and then July of this year, they announced that they were in virtual bankruptcy, leading to staff layoffs, which basically means everybody except for Michael Mendez. He's the only employee right now, Mm -hmm. and they completely halted their game development. So basically, what they're doing right now is they don't expect to produce any new games for the next two to three years. And instead, the company will be focusing on selling its existing stock of dice (laughs) (laughs) and other tabletop accessories in the hopes of eventually being able to start up again. Whoa. So yeah, so is, the, is the two to three years thing like a legal imposition on their? Like, are they being audited or something? I don't think it's legal. I think that's their approximation of how long they think it will take for them to get to a place where they can actually attempt to make a board game again. Oh, because they don't have any money. Exactly. And... Now, my question is, why do you think that might be? This is purely speculative right now, but based on what I've told you, what do you think could have gone wrong here? Yeah, I mean, even with the deluxified stuff, I would think that they're building enough margin in where they know that they can, whether it's reinvested or not, clear some degree of profit from that. I guess it could be an inventory issue, right? If you are manufacturing more than you need and you're not able to sell it, but you just said all they have is dice to, to right, sell at this point. Right, so, right. Yeah, I don't really know. The private equity thing is a little strange, but that's mainly because I don't fully understand what it is and what its purpose was. Sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and and I don't know either. Like I said, I'm purely speculating. I do have a couple of ideas. So the first one I think that probably needs to be mentioned is the price of shipping is nuts right now. Mm. The price of a shipping container to ship your games from China to the United States used to be around three thousand dollars a container. How much do you think it is now? Just guess. Thirty. Let's say twenty to twenty-five. Twenty. Yeah, twenty to twenty-five. Yeah. So. You're going from three thousand to twenty to twenty-five thousand dollars in shipping. That hurts, right? Yeah. And we're seeing the effects of that right now, right. right? So that's a potential explanation. But there are lots of companies that are staying afloat dealing with that as well. My suspicion is that Tasty Minstrel Games was running Kickstarters to pay for older Kickstarters that they had funded to pay for their parts. So in other words, what I'm saying is they fund a game. They spend tons of money on these really expensive bits. They don't have enough to cover the difference, so they run another Kickstarter to pay for the difference on the old Kickstarter, and then they have to pay do another Kickstarter. What ultimately got them, I think, is their more recent Kickstarters didn't do well. Right. And they were deluxified. Right. Specifically, their most recent game, Dragon's Interest, only raised $20,000 and they canceled the program. For reference, Yokohama raised $450,000. Right. So if you're banking on that kind of return every time and you release a couple of stinkers and you're making these really expensive games, you're going to get in trouble. Right. I wonder if that's not what happened here. That's a really good theory. Yeah. Pure speculation on my part. Obviously, as we say, this is all pure speculation we wouldn't be doing an episode about TMG games if we didn't like TMG games oh, and absolutely. hope for the best for them and hope that all of the things that we're speculating about are completely wrong, yeah. right? And that there's just some hard luck, right? Who knows? But the fact of the matter is they're not doing great. No. We're not seeing new things coming from them for the foreseeable future, maybe ever. Yeah. It's sad. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Just to be clear, I love TMG as a company. Some of my favorite games, right. many of my favorite sure. games are by them. Orleans, man. I love that game. Uh, right, exactly. Yokohama. Yokohama. So many good. At the Gates of Liang is one of my favorite games. And it just sucks to see him destroy one like this. Hate it. But yeah, let's talk about some of the games. Cool. Talk about some good stuff here. Yeah, let's get into yep. the games. Mm-hmm. 
it's autumn time again. Time to make the burgoo. Burgoo is a community-made stew made from several meats and vegetables. In the game, your goal is to add all of your ingredients to the stew and be the one who sampled it the most. <laughs> Love it. Nice. <laughs> it's a lengthy one. It is. <laughs> all right. Burgoo. Published in 2014, obviously by Taste Your Minstrel Games. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 11,262. That's because it comes in an envelope. (laughs) (laughs) They definitely saved costs on this one. This is the (laughs) non-deluxe. This is the anti-deluxified version. I do feel like it should have come in like a pot, maybe. A cauldron missed opportunity <laughs> could have been much bigger. Throw you're your gonna deluxify it, yeah, yeah. it would have been awesome. Yeah, the designer of this game is Dan Manfredini. He has one other notable design that I'm aware of a game called Far Space Foundry. I've not played it, but I hear it's pretty polarizing. And apparently, either you really enjoy this game or you hate it. I've never played Have you played this one? I haven't. Okay, you always ask me that question, and like nine, <laughs> 90% of the time, the answer is no. You can edit that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this game was actually recommended to us by one of our guild members, Wesley Vandenberg. So thank you, Wesley. He's pretty active on our guild. We thought we'd yeah. review this one. He said, you might want to check this one out. So we're doing this one for Wesley. Before I get into the rules, Jason, being our resident expert on everything, <laughs> has done a little bit of research no. on Burgoo. I just know how to use Wikipedia. That's all. <laughs> what is Burgoo, Jason? Well, you kind of actually described it pretty well in the flavor text. I didn't read that for him. Thanks, ha. I thought I did a flavor good job text. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <the>, yes. <laughs> anyway, it's a stew from the Kentucky, West Virginia, Indiana, Illinois region of the country. Midwest, Midwest. Nor- northern Midwest. Has an alternate name of roadkill soup. Yes. Because it was made with basically whatever meats and vegetables you have on hand, <laughs> which included it was cleaning venison. Cleaning out the fridge. Yeah. Venison or the squirrel. highway. Venison, squirrel, possum, raccoon, mm. game birds, <laughs> and then vegetables like lima beans, corn, okra, tomatoes, cabbage. When I read this, it reminded me a lot of Brunswick stew. Brunswick stew, yeah. So. That's our equivalent here in the south. The southern version. <laughs> yep. Yeah, apparently they served this at big community events. Like, I heard it was like a Kentucky Derby thing. It's at the Kentucky Derby and then like, like fundraisers. School and fundraisers stuff. and things, yeah. Huh. Weird, yeah. Like a chili cook-off, cool, I guess. I, yeah, I guess yeah. so, yeah. Admittedly, I never even heard of Burgoo until this game. So, dare we even ask, do you think that there will still be Burgoos? Bur- what is the plural of Burgoo? Burgai? Burgooses? Burgai. Like, now that there's been a pandemic. Burgeese? Like, these, the idea of, like, community meals. Like, we got to bring it. We got to figure out a way to bring back the Burgoo. Burgoo, you know, bringing people back together. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, from what I gather, it's still a thing. It's not like a... It's not like an old thing that went away. Good. But I don't know much about this area of the country. But if we have any listeners out there from this area and you know Burgoo, we'd love to get some recipes or (laughs) something. Cameron Cameron will make it for us. (laughs) I can give it a try. Well, speaking of recipes, I know I told you guys I didn't make a cocktail tonight. Yeah. That's because I made us Burgoo. What? Yes. Are you kidding? (laughs) It's in the house right now. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
Nice. I got y'all. Oh, you got us good. You were being rather suspicious with uh, the no I cocktail. I was trying. I, I don't have a good poker face, so my wife tells me. Mm. But uh, Well, you were behind the microphone. I didn't see you crack a smile. Yeah. I made us some burgoo. Did I'm you make go in and possum burgoo or raccoon burgoo? No. So I did beef, chicken, and shrimp, actually, because they said you could throw whatever you yeah, wanted. Yeah, yeah. So I threw some shrimp in there because, you know, why not? Why not? It looks kind of like gumbos. Okay. That's what I was thinking. Cool. So... I'm going to go get us some burgoo. Fantastic. If you want to pause the recording for a moment, Jason. Elevator music cued now. <laughs> Cute. All right. Well, we're back Woo. from our burgoo tasting session. It's delicious. <laughs> what did you guys think? Great job, Chris. Thanks, man. Yeah, definitely. Way better than I thought it was going to be. Me too. When I was making it, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in that yeah, pot. Yeah. After a while, it's like if you throw everything in, you sometimes lose the flavor, you mm. know, if you just throw everything in a soup. Right. I was worried about that. Nice textures in there. Had some shrimps, some, mm-hmm. some beef, some potatoes. Had me sweating a little bit. I know. Yeah, I, I like the heat. Spicy. Got a little nose run. Oh, Threw yeah. some jalapeno peppers in there. Quite good. Yeah. yeah, it was good. I enjoyed that. Nice job. I wouldn't leave you guys hanging. <laughs> now I can't surprise anymore. If I say I don't have a cocktail, you, you guys are going to know something's oh, up. What's Chris? What goodie is Chris going to give us this time? <laughs> All right. Brief rule summary for Burgoo. In Burgoo, the players are collectively making a pot of Burgoo with the winner being the player who is able to get all of his ingredients into the pot of stew first. From a component standpoint, this game is incredibly simple. The game literally consists of 96 square cardboard chits which in are made envelope. up what's that in an envelope in an envelope which are made up of six different types of ingredients 16 chits each chits each that's it S- say the whole phrase again 16 chits each <laughs> <laughs> 16 chits each all right perfect <laughs> perfect the way the game is set up is each player will take two chits of each type of ingredient and randomly place these ingredients in a straight line with one end of the line pointing towards the player and the other end of the line pointing towards the center of the table where all of the unused chits are placed. This is the pot of burgoo. In addition, the players will take one more chit of each type of ingredient, which will be their starting hand. On a player's turn, you can do one of three things. The first action is you can add an ingredient from your hand into the burgoo. So for example, I can take an onion chit, that sounds weird, from my hand and announce onion and then either say top or bottom. If I say onion top, myself and any other player at the table that has an onion at the top of their ingredient line can add this ingredient to the burgoo, bringing them one step closer to victory. If I say onion bottom, everyone with an onion bottom. <laughs> if I say well, onion, we are adults. Oh god! If I say onion bottom, also you kept saying onion chit, and if you say it too fast, you may have to start censoring the podcast. I'm trying as long as you to don't have onion chits coming out of your onion bottom. <laughs> this is a family show. If I say onion bottom. Everyone with an onion on the bottom of their ingredient line would get to throw it into the burgoo as well. The second action is really simple. You take an ingredient from the pot of burgoo and add it to your hand. And then the third and final action you can choose is splitting your ingredient line into two separate batches. So for example, if I were to throw a carrot chit from my hand into the burgoo, I could split my ingredient line anywhere above or below a single carrot chit in my line to create two separate lines or batches 
so that I now have two tops and two bottoms. It's important to note that you can do this several times over the course of the game so that you can have several top and bottom ingredients at one time, but it's important to remember every time you split batches, you are not adding any of your ingredients to the burgoo. Mm -hmm. You're just increasing your number of batches. One other important small caveat is that if an opponent to your left or right only has one ingredient left in a batch and you make a call that forces them to throw that ingredient into the burgoo, you actually get to take that ingredient into your hand instead of it going into the burgoo. The winner of the game will be the player that is able to get all of their ingredients in their ingredient line into the burgoo first. If several people do this at the same time, the player with the most ingredients left in their hand will be the winner. And that's generally how you play burgoo. As I mentioned in the rule summary, component-wise, this is an incredibly simple game. Again, 96 square chits. That's it. No dice. 93 plus 3 pennies. (laughs) 3 pennies, if you have my copy. (laughs) Somehow, mysteriously, and I'm sure none of my four kids had anything to do with this, three of my potato chits have vanished. Your potato chips? My my potato chits are gone, (laughs) and so I had to substitute them with pennies. But it still works. Although your your game did get a little bit more expensive. It did. But somehow not deluxified anymore. (laughs) I mean, metal components? Yeah, it bothers me really, really bad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so as I mentioned, it's a really simple game. Given the game's size and its scope, did you feel like there were actually meaningful decisions going on in this game? Yeah, when you explained this game initially, I was like, is this even a game? Or are we just... (laughs) Community experience? (laughs) Right. There are actually some pretty tough decisions in this. Mm Mm-hmm. You have to find that balance between how often do you split and then trying to maneuver those different batches in such a way that you are watching what everybody else is doing and trying to make sure that you can benefit from when they call onion bottom, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, I found that really interesting. Yeah, I thought the decision about not only when to split or when to throw in, but also when to take out because you start the game with only one of each different type of ingredient. Right. And eventually you run out and you're like, well, I need to throw in a potato. Mm-hmm. But no one else is calling potato, probably because mine are queued up and ready to go in. So I've got to get a potato into my hand somehow. Right. And yeah, it's an interesting balance because it's not just what do I take, but when do I take those actions? And I think the other tricky decision is, okay, I'm going to split into a a new batch, but where do I break the line? Right. And that's where I think a lot of the strategy comes into play because you have to make a decision based on what other people are doing, what other people have at the top and bottom of their lines. Yeah. When I first looked at this game, I was not expecting much because there's not a lot to it, right? But as both of y'all have said, there are some decent decisions going on in this game. I think this is pretty obvious, but just so our listeners are clear, in this game you're really just trying to find ways to get ahead of your opponents. Mm -hmm. Which of these actions will help me gain some ground or get ahead of my opponents? Do I call this ingredient and get to throw one in and maybe only one other person at the table gets Mm -hmm. to throw one in? Or maybe I can call onion bottom and I'm the only person with an onion on the bottom. Maybe now's a good time to do that. Or maybe I see that a lot of people have celery on the top of their line. Do I need to maybe instead split a batch and try to navigate my celery to the top Mm -hmm. of the line, right? So that when somebody calls celery top, I get to throw in and I don't have to spend my turn doing it, right? Right. For such a simple game, there's not interaction per se, but I found I was constantly looking at everybody else's tableau, right? You're just constantly checking, okay, what does he have on top? What does he have on bottom? Mm -hmm. Do I need to split here? Pretty good. Pretty good. 
Yeah, and the capturing mechanism is interesting too. Mm-hmm. In that, if somebody's down to one in a batch, and you call that, you get that ingredient. Because what you mentioned earlier, Cameron, in that eventually you're going to run out of chits in your hand, and you have to have a chit in your hand to take an action, right? You have to throw something in to be able to split or to call something or whatever. Right. And so eventually, it's kind of like Halloween. Like, you have to rest at some point. Like, you're going to have to take that action (laughs) where it's a throwaway action. I just have to spend my whole turn pulling something out of the burger so that I have chits to play to do something on my next turn. And so if you're able to make those captures... It may not be exactly what you want or what you need to throw, but you're saving yourself a turn or two yep. from having to take that wasted rest turn, yep. right? And potentially setting yourself up for the tiebreaker. Right. Right, yep. Yeah, no, I agree because ties are not uncommon in this game. Right, yeah. So looking for those opportunities, like Jason said, not only to take a chit to increase your tempo, but also just to have it in hand in case somebody goes out at the same time as you. Yeah. Right, can be really helpful in coming out ahead. It's definitely an efficiency game, right? Like, oh, for sure. Can you spy the opportunities to avoid having to do something that would otherwise occupy your entire turn? Right. One other thing I really liked about this game, and this doesn't necessarily have to do with strategy, but I think it's worth mentioning, is I feel like in board gaming circles and in amongst our circle, I feel like the definition of a filler has really broadened over the years. You know, sometimes somebody might come in late to game night and be like, oh yeah, we're just playing a filler. And then 40 minutes later we finish, you know, (laughs) and they're like, okay, I can finally play. We think of fillers as being short games. I think for me, 30 minutes or less, but 30 minutes is actually pretty long for a filler. This game is a true filler. Yeah. You can get this game out while you're waiting for somebody to show up and they'll be like, yeah, I'll be there in 10 minutes and you can play this. Yeah. Right. It serves that niche well if you really are looking for a real filler that you can play very quickly. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, two minutes to teach and eight minutes to play, right? right? I was going to say as well, like very little instruction required, right? So if you have folks, say, in a family group or something like that where it's a mixed bag, some people can play some of the games that we've talked about in this podcast and others are kind of like, ah, you know, skirting around the edges of board gaming. I'm not really much of a gamer. Those types of folks, I think, could easily step into a game like this without feeling intimidated or weighed down by the intensity that some of these games can typically Definitely. bring. Yep, for sure. So, any things you guys didn't like about Burgu? So, one thing that I noticed, and I don't know if this is a negative or not, but I'm interested to hear what you guys think. It seemed like most of the games that we played came down to each of the players who were really in the running for potentially winning. The arrangement of ingredients that they had in front of them were very similar. Yes. And it was like minor differences of like maybe mine split into three batches and Chris's split into two batches. I think in one game, Chris, you and I both had the exact same arrangement of stuff. And we tied. (laughs) Right. And at that point, it kind of comes down to turn order or it comes down to somebody kingmaking, right? Because somebody could just call the right thing that one of those two people needs in order to get ahead. I was curious what you guys thought about that. Those were literally the two things that I wrote down. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that that effect that you're talking about of ending up with similar tableaus for everybody, I think comes out with more experienced players. I don't think I saw it the first couple times that we played it together, but by the time that we had gotten used to playing it, you do see that those... Because everyone's making all the same observations, right? They're like, okay, how do I get my celery on top? How do I get my carrot on the bottom so that I can benefit from when that gets cold? I do think that can happen with more experienced players. Yeah, I think those are good points. 
I've commented on this before in the podcast on a couple of games, and actually on Lestrada two episodes ago, I believe, that mm. it bothers me when games consistently end closely. Like with Lestrada, in a three-player game at least, scores were very tight every time. Mm-hmm. And I did find in this particular game that a lot of people in like four or five player games were coming right down to it at the exact same time yeah. every time, right? And so when that consistently happens, you begin to start to ask yourself, how much do my decisions really matter in this game? If I play this game over and over again, and it's always the same outcome of three, sometimes four people in a five player <laughs> game coming right down to the finish line together then I think in that case, the winner is just that person who luckily got one of their ingredients called by somebody else randomly during the game that gave them just that extra step they needed to cross the finish line before everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's my feeling from playing this game quite a few times, actually. That bothers me. Go ahead and kick us off, Cameron. Sure. I do think that Burger is a great filler. I definitely don't think that there are any issues with it. I think speaking of fillers, we probably have more favorable ones than Burgu. Yeah. Because after playing it a few times, it does seem like a lot of players get on the same page about how to play, how to divide their ingredients and the most likely bits to be called. And then it's down to whoever had the most favorable initial setup or another player calling on their ingredients multiple times and them having that slight edge, one or two tokens ahead of everyone else. For that reason, I I don't know, like I... It's such an easy, quick game to play. I I hate to dock it too much for those sorts of things. But I think because we do know and have in our collection so many other just awesome fillers, I've got to give this one a three. I don't think it's bad. I do think that this would probably work better with, to be honest, less experienced game players. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think this side effect is less likely to happen without folks who were like constantly playing board games like we are. So I don't think it should get too many poor marks. But for me, yeah, a three. There's just other filler games I'd rather play. Yeah, I think we've talked about it at length now. I had similar feelings. I ended up coming out a little bit more favorably than you on this one. I landed on a four for this. I think because it's so short. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can play this game in 10 minutes. Yeah. I enjoyed my plays of it. Do I think maybe that could get stale over time? It's possible. But with the plays that we've had up to this point, I've enjoyed it. I think it's a solid filler. I think that it's worth exploring and at least trying out once. Mm. I mean, you could play this game with pennies and buttons, right? So I landed on a four for this one. I think it's a solid 10-minute filler. Yeah, makes sense. I think for me, a good word to describe this game would be inoffensive. That was the word that came to (laughs) mind when I was thinking about my final thoughts for this game. It's just hard to not like this game, or at least hate it. It's just so innocent, right? It's just 96 (laughs) chips. It's just a soup. Yeah, it's just a soup. (laughs) I can't see anybody being like, I hate Burgoo. It's just, it's so simple. It does a decent amount with so little. Yeah. You have to respect it. It's an accomplishment. It. It really is. It really is. I was impressed with what it was able to do with just some square chits. I appreciate that part of it. Unfortunately, and I think this is where I'm going to land with you, Cameron, the kiss of death for me in a game is that people consistently landing together. Mm-hmm. It just bothers me in games. I have no tolerance for it because then I just kind of feel like, well, why am I even doing this? Then it starts to feel like an activity, right? It's giving the illusion that there are good choices, and I want to believe that there are, and I think that there are, but if we keep all finishing at the same time, are there? I don't mm-hmm. know. And I think for me, that just made it fall into a three category for me. Now, I will say, 
I think this game is much better than 11,262 on BGG. Mm. Oh, for sure. Much better. Yep. Yeah. And I can see We've how We've given higher of, marks to, to oh, worse games. For sure. And I can see how people would enjoy it. I've played it with people in our group. Loris actually bought it the moment after we finished playing it. Really? For his family. Yeah, yeah. Because he Absolutely. said, I can mm. see my family enjoying this game. Mm-hmm. So all I have to say, I think in certain circles, it would work well. For me, it just barely missed the mark. I'll give it a three. Fair enough. Cool. Well, for folks that are interested, despite a couple threes, where can folks get a copy and give it a shot? Yeah, so good news. This game is readily available at Noble Knight Games. Our friends at Noble Knight, they have several copies available for under $5. There you go. Yeah, because again, it's an envelope. It's (laughs) very small footprint. I think that they missed the mark on the theme there too, right? Like, you know, at least Bananagrams gives you a banana-shaped envelope. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's true. They could have done like a little soft black pot or something yeah, with a zipper. Yeah, a little or, cauldron or something. A stew pot, yeah. Missed opportunity. <laughs> but yeah, it is very cheap. You can get it at Noble Knight for less than five bucks. We would appreciate it if you use it. Well, this is funny because to use our GEMS21 discount code, your order needs to be $10. So <laughs> buy Burgoo and buy something else that we reviewed previously on the podcast. And if you do that, you'll get 10% off of your order. Those are our thoughts on Burgoo. As long as the Colosseum exists, Rome will exist. When the Colosseum will be destroyed, Rome will be destroyed. And when Rome be destroyed, the world will be destroyed. Beta Venerabilis. The players build together the big Colosseum. The console is the central figure because only with his help, players can acquire the right landscapes to produce resources. But what's the use of having these resources when they can't be stored? Even here, the console comes to the rescue with the caps, where the resources can be stored. With the help of the stables, you can help the console along his route to influence his travels. Using his resources, Each player tries to contribute to the construction of the Colosseum to receive glory points. When the construction ends, the winner will be the player who could harness the most glory points during the building time. Do you understand, Maximus? (laughs) I was getting ready to say, I have a guess. Is this Marcus Aurelius a gladiator? It is, exactly. (laughs) Dude. Perfect. Within... Five seconds. I was like, that's who he's doing. I could tell. I love it. I could definitely tell. I love it. it. Spot on, man. I watched this awesome... It's like a five-minute scene. It's the scene from oh, yeah. the movie it's when they're in the tent. When they're in the tent, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. tells him that he wants I him to be the protector. Absolutely knew what you were doing there. Yeah, yeah. Just go watch that movie again. Holy Dude, cow! What a great a movie! Amazing awesome performances. Movie. Yeah. Such a great movie. I'm contemplating letting Bryce watch that. I think he can handle that. Oh shoot! All right. <laughs> I mean, they do, I mean, they do minus play shooters some, yeah, all the time. Some parts, yeah. The person getting chopped in half with the chariot wheel is pretty intense, but that is pretty intense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of blood in that one. We'll watch it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Architects of the Colosseum, or builders of the Colosseum, or Die Baumeister des Colosseum. Published in 2016 by Schmidt Spiel and, of course, TMG Games. I guess it's not TMG Games. It's Tasty Minstrel Games Games. (laughs) (laughs) Or Tasty Minstrel Games. Designed by Klaus Jürgen Vreda. And currently ranked on BGG 6,848. 
Desi- designer of Carcassonne. Ah, yeah. In case yep. you don't there know. You all right, so in this game, players are working together to build the Roman Colosseum, which is a 3D structure formed by a series of vertical slats that are inserted into a part of the game box. Once the last piece of the Colosseum has been constructed, the game ends immediately. There's a central game board, which has a circular track of seven action spaces and a wooden chariot, which represents the console, that players will be moving around this track to perform actions. Each player will be building a tableau of resource tiles in front of them, which will provide the engine that they'll use to acquire resources and other things necessary for building the Colosseum. Players start with four rows in their tableau out of six, one cart tile with three wheel icons on it, one tent tile, which provides the player with a base hand size of four for resource cards that they'll be using throughout the game, and then two other randomly selected resource tiles of the four types that are available. On a player's turn, they will move the console's chariot forward at least one space, but optionally more, and then they'll perform the action at the spot where the chariot stops. The first move of the chariot is free, but if a player wishes to move farther, they can either spend wheel points from their cart tiles in their tableau, or if those have all been used up, they can also optionally spend one victory point per additional move. So the action spaces that the console can land on, despite there being seven of them, there's actually really only three actions that can be taken. Four of these action spaces give the player a choice of either building a piece of the Colosseum, which requires resource cards, matching different colored flags on each of the tiles, or the player can take a resource tile from a line of resource tiles that are next to that action space. If a player takes one of these resource tiles, they will add it to their tableau, and then whichever resource tile is next in the line, that type of resource will be evaluated by all players at the table. And what that means is that if wheat is the next tile that comes up, every player will look and see how many wheat resource tiles they have in front of them on their tableau, and they will collect that number of wheat cards. If the tile that's next up in line is a cart tile, every player has the option of resetting their cart track back to the beginning, freeing up more spaces for free movements. Two of the other actions allow you to improve your tent. For this action, a player has to spend one card from their hand, and they will take a tent tile, and that will be added to your tableau, just like every other tile, and each tent tile increases your hand size by two. The last action is an action that basically just allows the player to call any of the resource types or wheels and every player at the table will evaluate that type, and they will collect cards based on the number of tiles that they have in front of them for that resource. So, like I mentioned before, the game ends immediately when the last Colosseum tile has been built. The last three slots for the Colosseum have extra bonus points of 1, 2, and 4, and then the game ends. One final scoring element that's very important, actually, to mention is that at the very end of the game, each of the six types of tiles that can be in a player's tableau will be evaluated, and whichever player has the majority or the most of each type will score four points if they have an exclusive majority. If the majority is tied, each player that's tied will score two points instead. After that, player with the most glory points wins the game. Glory of Rome. Glory points! (laughs) (laughs) So this game falls into that on the edge of filler category as well. Mm-hmm. It says 30 minutes printed on the box. And we, you know, we played it pretty close to that time on a couple <laughs> occasions. So that being said, what did you guys think of it? 
So I would say at first glance, I think the look of this game is pretty cool. I really like how when you fulfill a building tile, it actually stands up in the oval pattern to form a 3D coliseum. I think that's a nice touch. It could easily have been a thing where you just lay them flat somewhere or move a token up a slider or something Mm -hmm. like that. The fact that they thought to actually set them out vertically and you get to see the coliseum being built, it's a nice touch for the game. It's a nice visual aesthetic. It's completely unnecessary, but it does add to the visual. I agree. Yeah, one other thing that I liked about this game, and this is probably my favorite aspect of this game, I do feel like this game does a good job of making all your decisions feel positive. Mm. (laughs) You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. There are some games that are punishing, and I like a punishing game. We'll talk about one of those in a second. (laughs) We'll talk about one of those in a second, yeah. But this game, it just evokes good feelings. Every time you take a turn, you're doing something good for yourself. You have to do something that's going to benefit you. Increasing your hand size, or you're adding something that's going to be good for you later, drawing more cards, you're replenishing your wheels, whatever. You're benefiting off of other players' turns, Mm -hmm. too, so it's not like you only benefit on your turn. Exactly. It's just positive reinforcement after positive reinforcement after positive reinforcement. So if you like games like that, if you don't like games, that feel confrontational or punishing or you always feel like you're struggling to keep your head above water this is the opposite of that right yeah and so i think in a game that's on the shorter side i enjoyed that because the the game is it's fun it's breezy you know Mm -hmm. you're kind of playing quick and it's conversational you can talk but you still have some things to think about so i had one other thought that i thought was kind of cool the story arc of this game is pretty interesting Right, obviously thematically we're talking about building the Colosseum. You have this arc of tiles getting displayed Mm -hmm. around the, the circumference of the Colosseum. And because the sevens, the points on the tiles will be either fours or sevens. Because the sevens don't start coming out until like halfway through the game. And then the final three Colosseum locations have an added number of bonus points associated with them. I think the game can build to this nice climactic finish where the last couple of moves can really earn a player a lot of points and so it can be a bit of a nail biter there at the Mm -hmm, end mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh, which i think is kind of an accomplishment for a quick game right there is a story arc to it right the coliseum's getting finished so in other words it's not flat all the way through the stakes get higher as the game progresses yeah i agree i'd say the thing that stood out to me the most about this game was the tension between the three aspects of Do I increase my hand size? Do I increase my movement ability by getting more cart wheels? Or do I go for resource tiles Mm -hmm. and increase my ability to get resource cards? That's not unique to this game in any way, but I feel like it was done in a very clean way in this game Mm. for something as short as it is. And it added just that perfect tension of, well, there are different paths to explore here. I can see if just really having a lot of mobility gets me the win, or I can see if having a ton of hand size flexibility helps or some balance of those, right? I found that puzzle to be pretty interesting. And you're doing that within the framework of trying to get those majorities, right? I found that balance to be pretty satisfying. I agree. There was a lot of good tension here. And like you said, different paths to victory. I found myself constantly looking at other people's boards because you're trying to make that decision of, do I spend these cards and build this segment of the wall and score some points? Or maybe I just need to go grab that resource tile so I can stay one step ahead of Cameron because he's trying to cut into my points there, right? And so I feel like you're constantly evaluating what other people are doing 
that is guiding your decision-making process through the game. One other thing I will say, and I love this with this particular kind of a game. This is a Rondell game, right? If you think about it, you're moving yeah. in a circle. It's a Rondell mm-hmm. mechanism. The way they utilize the wheels of do I move way forward and try to grab this thing that I think that I really need or I really want and use up my movement, or do I hold back here and try to save some movement? Because I'll tell you, if you peg your wheels out yeah, and wheels don't reset for a while, you can really end up regretting that later. But it might be worth it at the time. And that's, again, that's a decision you have to make. Is it worth it for me just to go all for it and use up my wheels to do this thing I want to do and hamper myself later, right? It's a good decision. Yeah. I was going to say, I actually really like the fact that the rules of the game allow you to trade your actual points for that flexibility of movement when you are in a pinch. I seem to appreciate that anytime a designer includes a mechanism where you can risk points for some kind of an an advantage because there's an investment feel to that. I think it's a clever use of the game where like your points suddenly become in this one aspect like a currency. Yep. I agree. Well, what did you guys not like about this game? So I would say for me, the biggest con I had with this game is the lack of variability in setup Mm. concerns me. Now, I will say that there is one space on the board where I guess the game includes a little mini expansion of sorts where you can put a single little cardboard chit on one of the spaces that changes that one action you can do on that one space of the board from game to game. Yep. So there is slight variability there. But outside of that, that's it. So I think this game runs the risk of maybe feeling samey. I will say in my plays of it, I didn't feel that way. But I think we have to make note of it that there's not a lot of difference from game to game other than if you decide to use that shit and how the starting tiles come out, which, again, isn't really that big of a deal, honestly, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I could see that being an issue. The thing that I thought of that was potentially a con is because it is this Rondell thing and because everyone's movement is more or less the same, unless you augment in a greater way than your opponents, your wheel tiles, there is this possibility and this effect that can tend to happen where everyone more or less starts. It's either either the same one or the one before or the one after. Rarely are you going to start your turn on the other side of the board unless someone else made a sizable move that shifts the spacing around i don't know if there's anything that can be done about that right obviously the mechanism that's built into the game to sort of offset that is that everyone has this wheel thing mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm, ability mm-hmm. to spend points but it, it can be frustrating if you're playing a game and every single time you're like well i need to get over there now i have to spend a bunch of points or else maybe i'll just hope that it works out differently next time and just right. do something different than what i really want to do right now Yeah, I didn't have any major cons that I could think of for this game. I think that I found myself wishing at times that the point scoring for the Colosseum tiles scaled a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Not just 4 and 7, you mean? Yeah, as soon as you get to the B tiles, they go to 4 and 7, and then it stays that way for the rest of the game. It seemed like it killed the arc a little bit when you're still fighting over 4-point tiles at the very end of the game. But that's a minor quibble. Yeah, I agree. Uh, One other quick minor quibble for me as well is and Cameron you might disagree with me here based on your prior statements but I didn't love that the last three Coliseum building spots had one two and four victory points on them Hmm. just because it just seemed random I don't think there's anywhere that you can play your game to where you can guarantee that you can land on the two or the four victory point space if you try to do that you'll probably miss out on your opportunity right I think you just kind of have to take them when you can 
Yeah. And some person's just going to get lucky and get the four victory point one. Whereas if you try to wait and hit it, you might not score at all. Yeah. I don't know. It just felt unnecessary to me. Yeah, I think I can actually agree with that. I actually won on the basis, I think, purely of getting 11 points on the final turn. And it was more or less like... Well, you I won was, by five, so it, okay. it didn't matter. But. I was going to get that number seven token anyway. It just happened that... I think Bill got placed a tile right before I did. Right. So instead of me happening to get the extra two points, I got the extra four points. Right. And there's no way to know that Bill was going to do that too before you're right. That's what and, I'm saying. You can't and plan because for of, that. Because of the way that the turns happen, you can't really say, well, I'm going to time this out so that I'm the one that places the last. Because you don't know what people are going to do on their exactly. turn. You just can't engineer it, I guess. Yeah. It would leave precisely. a sour taste in my mouth. This never happened, but if scores were tight, somebody happens to win just because they got that four-pointer just because that's how it fell. You know, I don't know. I just hmm. could do without that. Hmm. Cool. Well, final thoughts? Chris, kick yeah. us off. So, as I mentioned before, this game, it's just fun to play. Hmm. As I mentioned, it's on the shorter side, and every time that we played it, especially once we got comfortable with the rules and the gameplay, the game just went really fast. People's turns were quick. Right. You know, it's just like boom, 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 boom. And then when Cameron's going, I trigger a wheat scoring. Oh, I get wheat cards. I just mm-hmm. feel like things were constantly happening. And it was always good. <laughs> it was fun. Light, breezy, has good decisions. I think there's a good decision space here. So for me, this game is a four. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's a four for now. I do wonder if in the future maybe it might drop to a three repeat of play just because I do have that concern with setup and variability. Could it get samey in the future? Yes. Am I enjoying it now? Yes. If somebody was like, hey, let's play Architects of Coliseum, I would be like, yeah, let's go. Right, it's just fun. I like it. So I'm going to give it a four. Yeah, I agree. This game offers a relatively short game experience. It's got a good pace of turn. I think it looks cool. The game depends on a good deal of planning ahead and paying attention to what your opponents are specializing in and how many wheel spaces they have available. Involves a little bit of engine building in terms of which resource tiles you pick up, which I enjoy. Overall, I think Architects of the Coliseum is a good game. I'm also going to give it a four. Nice. Cool. Well, I think we kind of aligned pretty well on this one. I don't know that there's a ton that I can add that you guys haven't already mentioned, but I settled on a four for this one as well. All right. I think I'm probably more on the positive side of four than on the negative side of four where you are, Chris. Interesting. Yeah, I'm a little more um, on the negative side. Yeah. And I think my reasoning for that is that with the right audience, I think this is a great alternative to something like Settlers of Catan, right? right? Yep. Like, yeah. right. You get that, yeah. you get a very similar feel even in this game. I think the, the resources are the same. Sure. Right? It's yeah, like yeah, yeah. W- wood, rocks, wheat, and water <laughs> instead of sheep, right? And I played this with a bunch of folks who don't play games as often as we do. And I was expecting it to be dry and than to be like, this is why we don't play games with you. <laughs> but everybody enjoyed it and had a good time. The last time we came over, you made us play Zulkin. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <that's> true. <laughs> true story. <laughs> right. And so I think that this game would have a pretty good appeal to that type of group or that type yeah. of crowd while still having enough good decisions in it to be appealing to people who play longer games and more involved games. And so for that reason, I think while I'm sticking with a four, I think I'm on the high side of four, Mm. uh, if that's a thing, for these reviews. Chris, where can people find Architects of the Coliseum, since I don't have that information in front of me? Well, good news. If you were thinking about buying Burgoo, and you want to get that 10% off. (laughs) But you want to get more than 50 cents (laughs) off of your order. If you want to get like $2 (laughs) off your order, 
you can buy uh, this game on Noble Knight. They have it on Noble Knight for as low as twelve bucks. Oh wow, twelve bucks! I'm that's thinking a, about that's doing a steal. That, actually, a, a, a four. Yeah, a hidden gems average four for twelve bucks. Get it while you can, folks, because I might buy it. That's a steal for sure. It's also on Marketplace on BGG, fifteen copies uh, for cheap as well. So definitely can get it if you want it. Cool. All right, well, those are our thoughts on Architects of the Colosseum. The Colosseum. Architects of the Colosseum. <laughs> Ponzi scheme is the term used to describe the technique Charles Ponzi used in 1919 to perpetuate one of the most notorious financial frauds in history. In theory, people were investing money and receiving dividends. In reality, there was no investment at all. All the dividends were paid using money from the new investors. In Ponzi scheme, players are scammers trying to trick investors into funding fraudulent investments with the promise of extremely high returns. You will need to make the trade to keep your operation afloat as long as possible because the dividends you need to pay every turn will pile higher and higher. When someone declares bankruptcy, the remaining fraudster who forged the biggest shell corporation wins the game. I wanted it to be more like a news anchor. Yeah, <laughs> I, like, I like it. But 20s, right? Radio. Yeah, makes sense. yeah, exactly. Love it. Better than Chris could have done. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Ponzi scheme. Published in 2015 by Tasty Minstrel Games, of course. At the time of this recording, its BGG ranking is 1,079. Pretty high up there. The designer of this game is Jesse Lee. I do know this guy. He's got a couple of other notable designs, Guns and Steel, and The Flow of History. Both of which might make an appearance on this podcast at some point. Actually, both also Tasty Minstrel Games, as it turns out. Interestingly, Dragon's Interest, the game we were talking about earlier, was also a Jesse Lee design. The okay. Kickstarter game cool. that got okay. canceled. I was first exposed to this game around the time it came out, probably around 2015 or 2016. I played this at our local board game convention, Whose Turn Is It Anyway? And it stuck out in my mind as a very memorable gaming experience because the particular group that I played it with, some of which I had met for the first time playing this game, we just laughed our rear ends off the whole time we played this game. <laughs> okay. You know, and it's a pretty interesting thing to play a game with total strangers and just be laughing the whole time and having a good time. Yeah. It just stuck out in my mind in that way, this particular game. This game was also recommended by two of our guild members, Ultima Ratio, who is Paul. I believe I mentioned him before. He's the guy that's last game on the left okay. on Instagram. And then one of our guild members who has been with us from the beginning, he was one of our first guild members, Jeff Wauer, who is known as Jay Wowser on BGG, also recommended that we should review this game. So cool. Jeff and Paul, this one's for you guys. Before I get into the rules on Ponzi scheme, Jason, our resident nerd, is going <laughs> to teach us, what is a Ponzi scheme, Jason? I'm actually going to start just by explaining the history of Charles Ponzi. Cameron, you touched on a little bit in the flavor text. I actually didn't know very much about Ponzi and what he actually did. Me either. So I started reading about it on Wikipedia today, and it was pretty interesting. So we'll go through it. Interestingly, this scheme started off, I guess, somewhat with good intentions. So <laughs> Ponzi's original idea was to invest in postal coupons, which I guess at the time were a way that you could pay the postage 
for someone else, kind of like a collect call almost is kind of what okay. I what I gathered, but I could be totally off on that. And the goal was to use arbitrage, which is buying something in one market and selling it in another market <laughs> for a profit, yeah. which is legal, but to do Shady, that legal, with these yeah. postal coupons and make money for investors. That never actually panned out, of course. But in 1920, Ponzi created his company, interestingly, the Securities Exchange Company. <laughs> This was, I guess, 14 years before the actual SEC came about, probably for good reason. And he started his scheme with 18 investors, totaling about $1,800. And he started going after working class folks to get more investors. But as word spread, by June of that year, he was pulling in nearly a million dollars a day from investors. In the 20s? Which is a lot of money. Wow. today's money. Yeah, yeah. So he could never actually get the original plan to work and began to realize that it was infeasible anyway. Just to pay back the original 18 investors who had given him money, it would have taken over 53,000 postal coupons, which were physical (laughs) pieces of paper that he would have had to ship across the Atlantic to get them here. And so for his 15,000 investors at that point, it was just not a logistical possibility to even do this in the first place. But he ignored this and was able to continue to pay back his investors using the funds from new investors, right. which is you know where the Ponzi scheme gets its notoriety. Interestingly, though, a lot of these investors who were supposed to be receiving payouts would just reinvest their funds back into the scheme <laughs> because you know it's a wise investment strategy if it's an actual real investment. Sounds familiar. Yeah. The press began investigating, but also interestingly, were charged with libel by Ponzi. <laughs> And at the time, the burden of proof was on the plaintiff to establish wrongdoing. And so Ponzi was actually awarded a half a million dollars in damages. <laughs> and it neutralized all further investigation into what he was doing for a time. Keep going. I see. It, I feel like they should have worked that part into the game. Yeah, that's right. Suddenly that's an expansion. Just an influx of free cash. <laughs> So eventually, more investigation was done to see if this plan was legitimate. But the investigation turned up that in order for it to be legitimate, he would have had to have been acquiring over 160 million postal coupons. And the Postal Service reported that there were only 27,000 in circulation. (laughs) So it was quickly realized that something was amiss. This caused a run on the SEC, the Securities Exchange Company that Ponzi owned. But he went out to the line of people waiting outside to collect their cash and started handing out donuts and coffee and talking to everybody. And I guess he had the type of personality where people sort of just believed him. And a lot of people, because of that, decided that they would just leave their money with him and they were satisfied at that point. So he managed to continue on a little bit longer. Wow. At that point, another formal investigation was launched into the books of the Securities Exchange Company. And the quote from Wikipedia (laughs) says that Edwin Pride was commissioned to audit the security exchange company's books, an effort made difficult by the fact Ponzi's bookkeeping system consisted merely of index cards with investors' names. So at this point, it was discovered that Ponzi was millions in debt, had borrowed many thousands of dollars from the Hanover Trust Bank, which he actually essentially controlled at that point, and everything came crashing down. He was eventually arrested. The Hanover Trust Bank, along with five other banks in the area, were all brought down as a result of the losses. Investors all lost their shirts. 
totaling $20 million at the time, oh, which is gosh. about $200 million in today's money. Holy cow. <laughs> oh, gosh. And Ponzi spent the rest of his life in and out of prison or various other schemes. He got involved in some sort of real estate scheme in Florida after this, after he made it out of prison the first time. He was eventually deported to Italy and died in poverty in Brazil in 1949. Whoa. The legacy of the Ponzi scheme lives on, of course, to modern days with Bernie Madoff and, yep. and others who have tried this. Interestingly, Bernie Madoff, in comparison to Ponzi's $200 million by today's standards of losses to investors, Madoff costed his investors $18 billion. Oh, my God! I didn't realize it was that much. That's insane. Yeah. Story time with Jason. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that, that was fun. Crazy. That's awesome. Well, actually, that will be helpful if you don't know how a Ponzi scheme works yeah. and understanding how this game works. So cause... while we're still in the history thing, if anyone wants to see an interesting and hilarious movie that is kind of along these same oh, yeah. lines of money, financial schemes or whatever, there's this movie with Jack Black that I probably got like $13 spent on advertising for it, but it just popped up on Netflix called The Polka King. <laughs> We were and, supposed to watch that before this episode. Oh, I know. Totally I know we were. Uh, yeah. I, just check it out. I think it's still on Netflix. I'm not entirely sure, but just look it up. It's worth it. The Polka awesome. King. The Polka King. Cool. All right. Brief rule summary for Ponzi Scheme. Here we go. In the game Ponzi Scheme, all the players at the table are running their own independent Ponzi schemes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Everybody at the same time. The game will end once one or more players go bankrupt. And this will happen mm-hmm. as Ponzi schemes, by their very nature, are unsustainable business endeavors, as Jason has already explained. The players that bankrupt are eliminated from contention, and then at that point, the remaining player with the most victory points wins the game. Players score points by collecting sets of industry tiles in one of four different types of industry, with exponentially more points being awarded for industry tiles of the same type. So again, there's like a set collection aspect here going on. In addition to industry tile sets, points will also be awarded for having certain amounts of money left over at the end of the game, if you have any money left. <laughs> All right. The game will progress through six phases, round after round, until a player or players bankrupt, as I mentioned. The first phase consists of funding, where players will take an industry tile, and then they will take a fund card from a display of nine face-up fund cards. Once taken, the fund card will give you a certain amount of cash money, However, they also have a dollar value written below, which is the amount of money you will have to pay back to your investors after a certain amount of time has passed in the game. Which a lot of times is larger than the amount you are <laughs> Yeah. So, for example, some cards will give you $25 with the promise that you pay back 27 at a later time, while other cards will give you $72, but you'll have to pay back $128 <laughs> at a later time. <laughs> and hilarity ensues. To determine when payback occurs... The players will place the fun card onto a six-sided wheel consisting of an arrow and then the numbers one through five in order. Each fun card will designate where the card must be slotted on the wheel. So for example, if the card has the number four written next to the payback amount, it will be placed into the slot four on the wheel. More on that later. The second phase is the clandestine trading phase, where each player will make one bid for another player's industry tiles. A player will place a secret amount of money inside a leather wallet and then pass it to another player at the table. If the player accepts the money, the offerer takes that player's industry tile. If the player does not accept the offer, that player will match the offer by placing an equal amount of money in the wallet and then hand it back to the offerer. 
and then that person will take the offerer's matching industry tile. In the third phase, after all the trading is finished, the first player marker passes to the left, and then the new player will get to remove one fun card from the board. Once this has happened, everyone will then turn their timer wheel one space clockwise. If the arrow on the wheel is now pointing at a previously taken fun card, that player must pay the amount owed back to the investor or the bank. If he can't, he bankrupts and the game ends. If all players can pay their debts, the game continues. One other important point to note here, <laughs> this is funny, is that once a fun card is paid, it is not removed from the game. <laughs> it gets re-slotted back into its original slot on the wheel and will come up for repayment again if the game lasts that long. It's also important to note that some of the fun cards have a picture of a bear on them. When it comes time to turn the wheels, if there are a number of bear fund cards in the display equal to the number of players, a bear market crash occurs and the wheel will rotate two spaces instead of just one. All fund cards that are passed over or landed on must then be paid out. Devastating. Devastating. <laughs> As I mentioned, the game continues on like this until a player or player is bankrupt and then at that point, the player with the most victory points wins the game. And that is generally how you play Ponzi Scheme. So, as I mentioned, in this game, everybody is running a Ponzi scheme. So, I think it would be fun just to throw it out there to start. What kind of emotions did this <laughs> game elicit in you as you were playing it? Did it feel stressful? Did you feel frustrated? Did it feel funny? Was is, it silly? How did you feel about this game? Is recklessness an emotion? <laughs> right. <laughs> Every decision in this game feels bad. <laughs> yes. So even if it's a good decision, it's a bad decision. Yep. Constantly taking on more debt, constantly taking on more of a burden that's getting me closer and closer to my eventual demise. <laughs> but not in the, yeah, I'm going to push my luck. I'm going to keep going in ink and gold style, right? right. It's like, no, the snake is actually going to bite me, right? right? <laughs> and that's something that people have a really hard time wrapping their head around in this game. Every time I have played this game without mm. fail, especially when you play it with new people, I watch them and you can see them looking at the board and they're like, how do I make this work? And These I'm are like, all bad decisions. you can't make yes. this work, right? Like you have to get them to understand and you have to come to grips with the fact that this is going to fall apart at some point for you. Yeah. You just have to figure out how to not make your house of cards fall apart before somebody else's right. does, right? Which, right. once everybody comes to grips with that, at least for me, I find the game to be hysterical. I just can't not laugh when I play this game. It's funny. I think some people, this game stresses them out. That's me. That feeling of, my debts are coming due, what am I going to do? But it's funny, when people get money from a fun card, they're making jokes like, oh, I'm going to take my wife out to a steak dinner tonight. <laughs> We're going to take that beach trip. And then the wheel rotates a couple of times, and you see the stress land on yeah. everybody. <laughs> like what it would really be like Dude, to run yeah. a Ponzi scheme, yeah, right? right? The game is highly thematic, oh, yes. I think. Oh, right? yes. Yeah. You feel the dread coming in on you, yeah. right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think my main reaction to this is stress because <laughs> the cards keep changing. Every time someone funds, a different card comes out and you're like, oh no, you guys got all the good cards because <laughs> the cards just keep getting worse. And they they have little percentages on each of the cards <laughs> that are showing the effective interest rate based on the right. income, the <laughs> dividend. And they're all minimum like 28%. Oh, yeah. And 40, 40 and 60%. Interest. Yeah. yeah those, the bear cards are all like 57%. You're doing good if you're at 40%. Yeah. So, obviously, different emotions for different people. It's a unique game in that way. 
emotions aside, how did you guys feel about the strategy in this game? I think a good place to start here, because I'm sure we're going to talk about it, is the clandestine trading phase, right? How, mm-hmm. how did you guys feel about this as a game mechanism? I will say this felt like an auction. Oh, for sure. To me. It's not an auction because you're just trading with one other person, but it has that same element to it. Got to set the right price. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear so our listeners understand this because you, you went through it pretty fast in your explanation. When you put money in the envelope and you try to trade with someone, it has to be in a color of tile that both of you have. Right. And that's because if the person accepts your bid, <laughs> you get their tile. But if they choose to match your bid... They take your time. Right. <laughs> right. And that can be devastating. <laughs> so that makes picking that number that you put in that envelope crucial. Yeah. Because it has to be enough, but not too much, to get what you want. And I say that because what you want might be different in different circumstances. Right. Sometimes you want the money. Right. Because you need the money. You want, you want them to you take want your tile. Yeah, you want them to take your tile and pay you some money because if they don't, you're yeah. going bankrupt. And sometimes, obviously, you want them to take the money and you want the tile but you don't want to pay too much for it. So I found that part to be fascinating in this game, but I don't feel like I ever really figured it out. And that part was frustrating to me. I think, Chris, you had it nailed by like the second game. But, you know, there's some games that I'm just naturally aren't going to compute for me. So I feel like I was frustrated by that aspect somewhat. It was felt very difficult to know how to value the things that I was trying to get and the things that I was trying yeah. to trade away. Yeah. And that's a challenge with any auction game, that it has yes. very flexible rules in terms of how mm-hmm. you value things. You can offer um, whatever. Right. And I think it's fascinating, right, as a game mechanic. I think I struggled a little bit to figure out the strategy around it and how to use it to the best of my abilities. But maybe that just means that's more of a positive for it, right? And that it's not solvable. It's something that you're going to have to work at and try different strategies on to really begin to understand how it works. The financial strategy in this game is fascinating where you're constantly trying to walk that line. Money, obviously, by design, is tied in this game. And so you want money, right? But it's funny, money really has minimal value at the end of the game. You really need the points, right? right? And so you make an offer to somebody, and you don't want to pay them too much because you pay them too much, you're going to bankrupt yourself. But if you don't pay them enough, they're going to take your tile, which you need for points. But then they give you money, and you're like, okay, well, I'm good on money now for a little bit, but I don't have the points that I need for the tiles, right? You're just going back and forth, back and forth of what is a good offer here. It's brilliant in that way, honestly. I can't yeah. think of any other game that does it quite like this. It was, I was really in awe of it, honestly. We talk a lot on this podcast about to what degree a game offers an element of control. And for a game that forces you into punishing debt from the very beginning, yep. this is the only aspect of the game that offers you a sense of control. It does. Really. Yeah. How much do I offer? Do I even offer, right? It's an optional move. Yep. But this is your opportunity of the game to potentially make a few extra bucks off the top. That's what I would start to think about. Like, how much am I willing to sell this tile for? What is its current value? And part of it, too, is, and I think you did a pretty good job with this, Chris, trying to pay attention to how much people's money is going out. Oh, yes. So that you can. This is a huge part of the game. So that you could use this as an opportunity to pinch someone into yes. selling off their tile you, you, for dirt cheap because they have to pay their debts the next it's round. It's a cutthroat world. And they can't afford to give away four or five or yeah. six. If I see Cameron, even though you don't know the dollar amounts, right. but if I can tell that Bill and Cameron made an exchange and Cameron paid Bill to take a tile from Bill, 
and I have a suspicion that Cameron paid a pretty good amount for that tile. Guess who I'm going to be trading with, Cameron? <laughs> yeah, because yep. I know you're I might strapped not have any more money for cash, right? And so you have to have margin. I can maybe get that tile from you cheaper because I know that you're not willing to pay a lot. Because if you do, you're going to bankrupt. Right. Right. And so you can really put the screws to people. Yeah. Like and that, unlike right? Bill, I don't want to just lose the game instantly. <laughs> 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 yeah. Good stuff there. The last thing I would mention which I think is a great additional twist to this game is the bull market. So good. I found myself throughout most of the games trying to just stay as solvent as possible. I was like, well, I'm just going to make sure that I have as much margin as possible throughout. I'm going to be as responsible as I can while making all these irresponsible decisions. (laughs) We'll be as responsible as I can be running my Ponzi scheme. (laughs) The problem is twofold. First, you don't actually acquire any of the points that you need to win the game doing that. Right. And second, as much as you can see everything that's coming on your little wheel, that bull market throws in that just little bit of extra instability when you don't know, is the wheel going to turn once or is it going to turn twice? Right. And then players having the ability to sort of manipulate that a little bit based on which cards they're taking off Mm -hmm. that tableau in the center, that just added such an additional juicy bit to this game of that unpredictability always being there and never really knowing if you're going to get screwed by having to pay two turns of the wheels worth of cards. Right. I thought that was yeah. interesting. It is unpredictable, true in a way, but at some ways maybe predictable in that if you're playing a five-player game and there are four bear cards showing and you've got a few more people to go through, you can start to get a sense that bear market might happen here. And so it enters another interesting part of the game. You look at those really high-interest bear cards where you take 70 and you have to pay back 160, and people are like, well, why would you ever take those? Well, if I look at everybody's time wheels... Mm-hmm. And I can see that somebody's probably going to bankrupt, especially if a bear market hits before that one even comes due. Then I can take it without any worry. Right. Right. It's never going to hit me, most right. likely. Right? right. And so you do find yourself looking at people's time wheels constantly. Yeah. Is Bill going to get through that? Will Eric survive that turn, especially if it turns twice? Right. I think I'm safe to take this card. You start playing those games. So what did you guys not like about it? I feel like this is a common con for me, but this game felt really long. I think that's because of exactly what we've been talking about. Agony. These decisions are agonizing. Yeah. yeah. And the other downside to it being as long as it is with those agonizing decisions is that they're very isolated decisions, right? When Cameron is deciding how much money to put in an envelope to give to Bill, I have nothing to do, mm. right? I'm just sitting sure. there staring at the wall waiting until it becomes my turn to make a trade. Mm-hmm. And so as fascinating as the decisions are when they come to you, there's a lot of downtime in between those decisions where you really have no vested interest, aside from what you mentioned earlier of seeing, oh, well, Cameron's trading with Bill, so maybe I'll go after him next, right? So that was one downside for me. Yeah, I agree, Jason. I think for me, that was my biggest con as well. The only thing for me that really stood out is it can run on the longer side. It doesn't have to. But it probably will because you just get paralyzed in bad situations. And you constantly are trying to tell yourself how you can fix it. Right. (laughs) Again, very thematic. I can make this work. Yeah. I could, if I only have more time, you know. Just pass out more donuts and coffee. (laughs) That's right. But you can't. You can't make it work, right? So people tend to get locked up trying to figure out how to save their sinking ship sometimes. But like I said, people are usually laughing so much. It didn't bother me too bad. But it can be a con. Should we move on to final thoughts Yeah, then? yeah, let's do it. All right, I'll kick us off this time. The decisions in this game are fascinating. We've been talking about that from the beginning. 
And I think that the clandestine trading phase is agonizing, but also very interesting. I think for me, though, there's a lot of downtime and you're not building an engine. Right. <laughs> you're watching an engine fall apart. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you're just like trying to hold it together. I think that's unique. Right? Yes. I, I haven't played many other games that work that way. Yeah. Right. There's not a lot of games that are like, here's a jalopy. See how far down the road you can get before it falls apart. <laughs> that's actually a pretty interesting idea, though. Yeah. I guess that's kind of like, uh, what's we the one in space? We could call it jalopy. Galaxy truck. Galaxy trucker where your ship's falling apart. Yeah. Jason's jalopy. <laughs> I feel like my final rating of this is similar to how I rated Burgu in that I think it's unique enough that it's definitely deserving of a play. Everybody should try this game once mm-hmm. for the experience of it. I think for me, some of that downtime stuff detracted from the overall experience. So I was kind of on the fence. This sounds doom and gloom, but I was on the fence between a four and a five for this game because I think it has some really unique and fascinating mechanisms. But I think it got pulled down to a four because of that length issue and the downtime, combined with the fact that I just suck at it. (laughs) But that's not a reason to rate a game low. But it did detract from my already down feeling playing this game that you're watching that engine fall apart, that I was also struggling to understand how to value things and how to really play it well. So that long roundabout answer settles me on a four for this game, because I do think it is a good game, and I think a lot of people will enjoy it, if for no other reason than the fact that it's unique. Yeah, yeah. I think my thoughts are somewhat similar. This is one of those reviews where I really do have to give credit where credit's due for a well-designed game. But in the end, I have to say, I just don't like it. Uh, It's important that playing the game is as fun as winning the game, Mm -hmm. in my book. We play a lot of games that involve agonizing decisions, but have a general trajectory that's hopeful and enjoyable to build up your position in the game toward a potential victory. You get none of that in Ponzi scheme. All you can think of in this game is, have I done enough to survive? Is there any way that I can pay my debts without having to sell off all my points? Maybe there are folks out there who are somewhat masochistic and like having a game torture you, but that's not me. So here's what I'm gonna do. On its merits alone, in terms of mechanics, design and production, and theme, I'm giving Ponzi Scheme a four. I think it's quite well made. However, on replayability, for me, this is a two. Oh, whoa. I do think folks should try it, but I think it yeah. really suffers on that point. Once you've been through Ponzi Scheme <laughs> once, twice, and you've had your, Suffered just, through your it. <laughs> butt handed to you multiple times, the market has crashed, and everything that you thought you were hanging on to for the past hour just collapses because somebody, I won't name any names, Bill, doesn't take the red card that keeps the game from ending and handing the whole thing to Chris. No, I'm sorry, Bill. I, I know. I've been giving him a hard you time You know what's about particularly fun about that? Is he did that because he thought that was going to get me. Right. And ended up winning me the game, which made it even better. <laughs> or worse, depending on who you are. But yeah, it's a long game to work through, only to have it abruptly end and oh, collapse yeah. just like that. And the whole time, you've just been filled with all sorts of unsettling emotions. Yeah. So I'm going to go with the split thing on its merits, its game qualities, mechanics. As a game reviewer, I've got to give it high marks, right? Because I do think it's well executed. Mm -hmm. In terms of desirability to play it again, no, I don't want to play it again. Sorry. (laughs) I get that. I get that for sure. Wow. What to say here. I'm still reevaluating in my mind. So for me... I'm always looking for fresh new experiences and board games are different. And Jason, you already said it and I totally agree with you. Ponzi Scheme is unique. Yeah. There's nothing like Ponzi Scheme. 
nothing. It's just an experience in and of itself, right? I think it captures the theme perfectly. I was really interested to hear how you guys felt about the game, which is why I led with that leading Mm -hmm. question. Because Mm -hmm. for you, Cameron, you didn't enjoy the feeling of your debt collectors over your shoulder coming to collect money you didn't have, right? It's unique to me, right? I must be masochistic. I think I am. I just couldn't. I laugh hysterically when I play this game. I find the game funny. Whenever I look at people, when they look like they're suffering and in pain, I'm just laughing the whole time. The game is hysterical. Chris is going to go start his own Ponzi scheme after this. Because <laughs> you can just see the wheels turning like, how am I going to make this work? And I'm just sitting here thinking, you can't make it work. It's just that kind of game, right? I get some sort of sick satisfaction You can't out of make that. it work. Can I buy your tile for $6? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's just, it's great. The auction and the trade in this game, top notch. It does actually remind me of one game, and I'm surprised you didn't mention it, Jason, but maybe you didn't make this connection. Is this the Strasbourg thing? Oh, I did. <laughs> did you say that? I didn't mention oh. it, but I thought about it. Because Medici sure. requires you to make that perfect bid. You get one shot, right? right. you got to hit it just right. right. And this game is like that. When you make that offer in the clandestine trading, you have to hit it right. Or your whole game can fall apart. If you mess up one of those, you right. can be in big yeah, but trouble. your opponents don't take all of your goods off your ship if you make the wrong bid. <laughs> exactly. It's more punishing <laughs> than Medici, for sure, right? The game is excellent. I am between a five and a six on this game. Wow. I love auctions. I think of this game as an auction. I'm going to give it a six. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I, I had a five written down, and this happens sometimes when we review games as I'm talking about it out loud with you all. And the emotions I get... It pushed me over. Like I said, I had a five written down. I was on the line, but I... So you're putting this on the same level as Strasbourg. I am. Right? Like, we I finished am. recording, and you're like, I will play Ponzi Scheme right now. This I would, for sure. This game wow. is just fun. Wow. For me. <laughs> Buyer beware. You could hate this game. Right. But for some people, I think they would love it. And I'm one of those people. Man. Two, four, six. Two, four, All six. Right. All over the map on that one. <laughs> All right. Well, Chris, folks out there that want to try and see if I'm right or if you're right. (laughs) Everybody should try this game once. Everyone should try this game. I I I totally believe that. that. Everybody should try it once. Again, available on Noble Knight. Pretty affordable in the $30 range. So if you want to give it a go, you can get it on Noble Knight and 11 copies on BGG as well. Very cool. Those are our thoughts on Ponzi Scheme. Well, we, of course, want to thank everyone for joining us on this Tasty Minstrel Games episode of Hidden Gems. If you like what we're doing here, please remember it's a huge help to us if you would leave us a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. Follow us on our various social media platforms. We're particularly active on Instagram. Check out the BGG Guild if you want to interact with us or share a game that you think is a hidden gem. And if you're so inclined, please consider supporting the show over at patreon.com slash hidden gems podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Cameron. This is Chris. And I'm Jason. Thanks for listening. This episode of Hidden Gems, number 20, was recorded in Raleigh, North Carolina on November 8, 2021. Join us again in two weeks to see if Jason and Chris can beat Bill to the checkered flag as we review a trio of racing games. Hidden Gems is produced and edited by Chris Alley, Cameron Lockie, and Jason Yonchliff. Our Board Game Geek Guild is monitored and managed by honorary Hidden Gems team member Ghidorah. Our show's logo was illustrated by designer and artist Caitlin Nieto. 
check out her work on Instagram at It's Caitlin Nieto. We would love to hear from you. Feel free to join the discussion on our many social media accounts. You can find us on Facebook at Hidden Gems Board Game Podcast, Instagram at hiddengems.podcast, and Twitter at Hidden Gems Board. Disagree with one of our reviews? Have something you want to say about one of the games we discussed today? You can also make your voice heard on our Board Game Geek Guild at boardgamegeek.com, guild number 3874. Once again, thank you for joining us on Hidden Gems, and until next time, fellow gem seekers, enjoy your games and enjoy your search. Jason. He's back. Get him! Get him! Dude, there's a huge one over there. Oh, really? Just grab a game. <laughs> so, what? <laughs> oh, there's two of them. Gross! Oh, man. Get. What? No! Yeah, you, you give this man a flip-flop. Gotta get both of them. That's there was so a ginormous good. one that crawled into your game cabinet. Right? Mm, poop all over the... You gotta, you gotta be smart here. You gotta go easy. Just uh, Oh, yeah, he's still up there. I paralyzed He's him. up there. He's under that knot. No, no, no. You just gotta reach up there and just give him a pop. In the corner, man. Well, you know, it's either, uh, it's either in the corner or in your games. Now he's racing for the safe confines of Snowdonia. <laughs> Are we still recording right now? Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, well, now back to our awesome regularly scheduled Where were program. we?